This module is devoted through a study of primary sources to understanding and expounding Van Til's presuppositional method of apologetics. We're going to begin in this module by talking about the Reformed system of doctrine and the way that that Reformed system of doctrine bears on the development of a distinctively Reformed presuppositional method of apologetics. Van Til makes explicit in his writings that our system of Reformed theology dictates our point of contact and shapes our apologetical method. If I were to put the argument of this entire module in a single phrase, Van Til seeks to bring to bear classical Reformed Trinitarianism and Federalism on an apologetic method that reflects that theology, that seeks to vindicate that theology. The relation between the Reformed system of doctrine and a Reformed apologetic is an organic relation. The method of defense flows directly from the theology confessed. That's the central, central and integrative point of all these lectures. Before we deal concretely with either the point of contact or the apologetical method, then we must have an overview of that system of doctrine that we confess. We do not teach a traditional Roman Catholic theology and are therefore not interested in defending traditional Roman Catholic theology. We do not teach a modern Bardian theology and are not interested in Bart's theological method and his denial of apologetics. We are interested in the system of confessionally reformed theology and seek to defend that theological system. Thus, to the extent that our reformed system of theology stands out as distinctive over against traditional Roman Catholicism, over against modern Bardianism, so also the starting point and the method that we promote will be equally distinctive. That insight must be kept in mind throughout this entire module. Return to it over and over again as you reflect on this important issue of apologetical method. In chapter 1 of Van Til's first edition of The Defense of the Faith, well before he speaks of the starting point or method in apologetics, Van Til sets forth the system of Christian theology summarized in the ecumenical creeds and set forth in the Reformed Confessions. He does so in order to remind us that the system of Reformed theology, what Voss would term the deeper Protestant conception, shapes decisively a Reformed apologetical method. And so, classical Reformed Trinitarianism and Federalism bears directly on the development of the point of contact and an apologetical method. Now, Let's begin where Van Til begins as he sets this forth with what we will say uh, in light of his uh, defense of the faith is the doctrine of God. Van Til begins with the doctrine of God. He says in the defense of the faith that the doctrine of God is of fundamental importance 
to Christian theology and apologetics. By fundamental, Van Til means something of most basic structural significance. As Reformed Christians, we confess a God who is self-contained, exists necessarily, and all that is created comes as an act of His sovereign will. Creation is a free act of God, and this means that everything in creation is to be understood in relation to the self-contained and immutable triune God, the triune Creator. As we've seen before, this is the starting point for a concrete line of thinking. You begin with the self-contained Trinity. A Reformed apologetic, Van Til argues, seeks to understand the nature of this God and commend his truth to unbelievers. In Van Til's estimate, we must ask what kind of God we believe in and confess before we seek to defend or set forth his revelation. So, in his Doctrine of God, Van Til begins by speaking of the incommunicable attributes of aseity, immutability, and simplicity. Van Til addresses first the incommunicable attributes of God. Following the presentation in Bavinck's Reformed Dogmatics, he begins with the independence or aseity of God. God in no sense depends on or is conditioned by or changed by anything outside of himself. He is self-existent, self-determined, and self-contained. Van Til insists further that the triune God remains ase both apart from and in his sovereignly willed relation to creation. In contrast to all forms of correlativism or pantheism, or mutualism. Those terms can be used synonymously for the purpose of this course. In contrast to all forms of correlativism or pantheism that teach God's voluntary transformation, God voluntarily changing himself in relation to creation, Van Til maintains God's aseity in his sovereignly willed relation to creation. And he likewise resolutely embraces the unqualified doctrine of the immutable triune creator. God does not and cannot change in relation to creation because there's nothing besides his own being on which he depends. So when it comes to the creator-creature relation, God does not take on or come to possess properties or attributes he did not have before that act. Creature changes, relation changes, God remains the same. Ventil then addresses the infinity and unity of God. And he says that when we apply the infinity of God in relation to time, we speak of him as eternal. When we apply the infinity of God to his relation to space, we speak of God as immense or omnipresent. God is above all space, yet everywhere present within its every crevice. God is above time, yet everywhere permeates its lockstep movements. The self-sufficient and immutable triune God is not changed in his relation to time or to space. 
Now, theological rationalism of all sorts will posit at some point spatial or temporal qualities that God somehow takes on in his relation to creation. In such dialectical constructions, God transcends space according to one set of properties, but is spatial according to another set of properties, is immutable according to one set of properties, but mutable according to another set of properties. Over against this, Van Til says, quote, the attributes of God are not characteristics that God has developed gradually. They are fundamental to his being. Socinians, Hegelians, process theists, open theists, contemporary evangelical biblicists all affirm the idea that God develops in time and acquires properties that are accidental, mutable, and developmental. Van Til says no to these proposals. In his Doctrine of God, in the classical Reformed Trinitarianism, in the Doctrine of God, Van Til presents an unqualified doctrine of immutability, aseity, and simplicity. And then, of course, Van Til makes explicit that there are three divine persons who subsists distinctly as the entire and undivided essence of God and indwell one another in relations of personal coherence. You can look back at the first module on the doctrine of God, I believe it was the second, on the Trinitarian theology of Van Til for a much fuller discussion of this. But when Van Til speaks of his doctrine of God, he speaks of the one living and immutable tripersonal God who relates to creation without change. And that brings us to a central key in Van Til's doctrine of God, which is, of course, the creator-creature relation. We're thinking of the creator-creature relation. Uh, Van Til says this, quote, The whole question... The whole question with which we deal in apologetics is one of the relation between God and man. He says that in the Defense of the Faith, page 29, up front. The whole apologetical question revolves around a specific Reformed conception of the creator-creature relationship. While popular presentations of Van Til's approach hinging on the creator-creature distinction has some warrant, for Van Til, the relation between the creator and the creature needs all of the emphasis we can give it. Not only does Van Til insist on the creator-creature distinction, but he has a definite doctrinal conception of the creator-creature relation. So, Everything hinges, Van Til says, on understanding the relation between the creator and the creature. About six months ago, Ryan Noah made me aware of a confession that Greg Bonson wrote in the early 90s, uh, a Reformed confession regarding creation. And under the heading of the creator-creature distinction, Bonson wrote something that 
captures the core insight of Van Til on this creator-creature relation. He says this, quote, We affirm that God is a personal, sovereign, transcendent, and triune spirit. He alone is infinite, self-sufficient, unchanging, and eternal. We deny that God is a secondary, created, developing, or dependent being. We deny that the acts of creation changed the being of God, added anything to his perfections, or altered the internal relations among the persons of the Trinity. That's prescient in terms of our contemporary situation. Following Van Til, Bonson affirmed that God is unchanging in relation to creation, and he denied that God is developing in relation to creation. He further denied that the act of creation changed the being of God or added any perfections to God. Bonson lucidly maintained that the creator-creature relation affirms at every point the creator-creature distinction. Van Til's entire apologetic rests on maintaining without modification that central doctrine. Those who posit that God changes in a second mode of existence or adds new properties have already forfeited Van Til's apologetic as well as denied his theology. Now, if you want more on the doctrine of God, you can read the volume, Van Til's Trinitarian Theology, look at the module devoted to Van Til's Trinitarian Theology. But secondly, Van Til talks not only about the doctrine of God, but when it comes to classical federalism, he talks about the foundational importance of the doctrine of man. And I want to keep emphasizing this so you keep it in mind. This is the indispensable prerequisite for understanding his apologetical method because we are confessing a reformed system of doctrine with a definite conception of the triune God and a definite conception of image-bearing Adam in covenantal relation to him. So Van Til adds in the defense of the faith, quote, next to the doctrine of God, the doctrine of man is a fundamental importance. And so you can see it already arising. What is of fundamental importance? Classical Reformed Trinitarianism, classical Reformed Federalism. Fundamental importance when it comes to a Reformed apologetic. If, as Van Til maintains, the creator-creature relation lies at the heart of a Reformed apologetic, the next to a Reformed doctrine of the self-contained ontological trinity lies a doctrine of man as the image of God and in covenant with God. Van Til begins precisely where Gerhardus Voss, his favorite professor at Old Princeton, began in his presentation of the deeper Protestant conception of the image of God. Quote, Van Til says, Man is created in God's image. He is therefore like God in everything in which a creature can be like God. He's like God in that he too is a personality. That is what we mean when we speak of the image of God in the wider or more general sense. Then when we wish to emphasize the fact that man resembles God, especially in the splendor of his moral attributes, we say that when man was created, he had true knowledge, 
true righteousness, and true holiness. This doctrine is based upon the fact that in the New Testament, we are told that Christ came to restore us to a true knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. End of quote. Van Til follows the teaching of classical Reformed anthropology when he says that Adam's creation as the image of God consisted in a wider conception of him as a personality endowed with reason, affections, moral agency, as well as a narrower conception of Adam created in true knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. Following Calvin and Bavink and Voss, Van Til roots this teaching in large part, quote, upon the fact that in the New Testament we're told Christ came to restore to us true knowledge, righteousness, and holiness that was lost in the fall. Now, this insight of Van Til's sets the Reformed doctrine of the image of God directly over against the Roman Catholic doctrine of the image of God. We've treated this enough in previous lectures that I think it's appropriate for you simply to make reference to those lectures. And if you're interested in a further study of this, I have an essay entitled The Deeper Protestant Conception of Natural Theology that compares and contrasts extensively the Reformed doctrine of the image of God and the covenant of works to the classical Roman Catholic doctrine of the image of God and the Donum Superadditum. But Van Til set forth a doctrine of the image of God that is of distinctive Reformed theological produce. Now, Van Til also, uh, having spoken of Adam as the image of God, and we have spoken, of course, about the covenant of works, Van Til also spoke about the doctrine of Christ. And I want to spend some time on this because we have not addressed his doctrine of Christ explicitly and extensively in previous modules. In Van Til's doctrine of Christ, two points of significance emerge. The first pertains to the nature and necessity of the incarnation as a redemptive means to an eschatological end. The second pertains to the unqualified immutability of the eternal person of the incarnate mediator. Those two points, the redemptive necessity of the incarnation and the unqualified immutability of his person, are the two central features that Van Til emphasizes. So first, let's talk, when it comes to the doctrine of Christ, about the redemptive necessity. The redemptive necessity of the incarnation. In Van Til's doctrine of Christ, two points of significance emerge. The first one is this one, that the incarnation is not necessary to relate man to God in a relation of creation. There is no absolute creational necessity for the incarnation. 
Instead, Van Til maintains that the incarnation is necessary only to return fallen man to God in a redemptive relation. So it's not an absolute creational necessity. It's an absolute redemptive necessity. He says, quote, Christ came to bring man back to God, end of quote. The incarnation isn't necessary to relate God to man. It is rather as one facet of the estate of humiliation and in conjunction with his estate of exaltation. It is necessary as a means to an end of bringing fallen men and women back to God in a redemptive relation in the covenant of grace. Any view that posits the incarnation as the necessary supplement to either enable or perfect a creational relation apart from sin is rejected. Van Til rejects any form of the incarnation that's seen as necessary to either enable or perfect a creational relation. The deeper modernist conception of Karl Barth posits that Adam was intrinsically fallen and required the reconciling Christ event in Geschichte. That view takes for granted there's some inherent deficiency in man as created in history that will not allow for the creature to have God as his blessedness and reward. Van Til rejects the view that requires the incarnation to supplement or perfect the pre-fall relation to image-bearing Adam in the covenant of works. God does not need the incarnation to relate to man, and man does not need the incarnation to relate to God. Van Til's insistence on this needs all the emphasis we can give it. This in large part explains his rejection of Karl Barth's theology, who centers incarnation as the necessary means by which God relates to the creature creature from the outset of creation. In fact, Van Til is following Voss on this point. Voss, in his Reformed Dogmatics, RD 3, 24 and 25, roots Jesus' incarnation and the need for it exclusively in fallen man's need of redemption. The incarnation of Jesus flows directly, and this is a quote from Voss, from the necessity that a real satisfaction must be made by the mediator. This presupposes the duration of a certain phase, the transition from one state into another, the experiencing of certain transient conditions, entry into time, and participation in history. Of God himself, one cannot say that he has a history, for he is the eternal one with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Everything in him is unchanging presence. Salvation or satisfaction, on the other hand, is not an eternal process, but something temporal occurring in the human sphere. Even though it originates with God and has reference to God, it must take place in what is finite and created. Every other conception rests on a pantheistic view. And then he says this, this is the key. Because we hold satisfaction to be 
a single historical fact and not a transition in the eternal development process of the absolute. For that reason, we have need of the genuine humanity of our Lord. And as a basis for that, an incarnation taking place at a particular place in time. Voss, like Van Til, maintained that the incarnation serves as a redemptive and remedial means of bringing men back to God in redemption. It is not necessary for the creator-creature relation per se, but only for restoring its rupture in sin. Now, the second point that Van Til makes is not just the redemptive necessity of the Incarnation, but the unqualified immutability of the person of the Son as incarnate. The unqualified immutability. Voss says this in his um, Reformed Dogmatics. In the Logos, a divine person who is immutable is present from eternity. If now there can be but one person in the mediator, and the divine person cannot be eradicated or changed, then it is self-evident that this person is the divine person of the Logos. One can only maintain the immutability of God if one holds to the deity of the person of the mediator. That is a fundamental and critical point to maintain. Page 42 of Volume 3 of Voss's Reformed Dogmatics. Voss has no place for the mutability of the eternal person of the Son in the work of redemption, any more than he has a place for the mutability of the person of the Father in the work of creation. James 1.17 The divine person of the Logos, the eternal person of the Son of God, quote, cannot be eradicated or changed in the event of the Incarnation. The deity of the person of the mediator maintains, according to Voss, the unqualified immutability of God in his relation to creation and in the event of the hypostatic union. Yet because we as sinners need satisfaction for sin, we have a genuine need for the humanity of our Lord and for the incarnation taking place at a certain time. But he denies that in that incarnation, it is a development process in the absolute. Now, when advocating Voss's point that the incarnation is needed in order to secure redemption, Van Til also advocates for the unqualified personal immutability of the Son of God. He says early in the Defense of the Faith, page 32, this. He says, When we have discussed the doctrine of God and the doctrine of man, we have the two points between which the knowledge transaction takes place. Yet, since sin has come into the world, 
We cannot see the whole of the picture of reality from the Christian point of view until we see how God and man are brought together after their separation. Reconciliation is possible only if God brings about salvation for man and therewith reunion with himself. Christ came to bring back man to God. And then he says this. To do this, he was and had to be truly God. Nor does it mean that the divine and human natures were intermingled. Uh, you could think of it this way. The human and divine natures were not brought together in some mutable third thing. Christ was, Van Til says, and remained even when he was in the manger in Bethlehem, a divine person. But this divine person took to himself, in close union with his divine nature, a human nature. Accordingly, this implies that even in the incarnation, Christ could not commingle the eternal and the temporal. The eternal must always remain independent of and prior to the temporal. Van Til is insistent that the eternal person of the Son of God undergoes no change in the incarnation. In the event of the incarnation, there is no modification in the eternal person of the Son. Now, I'll remind you from our previous module that Van Til also appeals to the work of Hermann Bavinck and his critique of Dorner, who posited that there was a change in God in the work of creation and in the event of the Incarnation. Van Til says, as you have heard before, Bavink insists, and rightly so, that all these efforts, ascribing change to the Trinitarian persons in creation, ascribing change to the person of Christ in Incarnation, all of these efforts are foredoomed to failure. Scriptures speak anthropomorphically of God. They could do no other. But for all that, God is in himself Immutable. There's a change around about him, change in relation of things to him, but there is no change in God himself. Now, here's what I want you to appreciate about Bavink and Van Til. This needs to sink deeply into your understanding. Bavink and Van Til apply the logic of personal immutability in the work of creation to the personal immutability of the Son in incarnation. Whatever we say about the eternal Son's relation to his assumed humanity in that terminal relation of incarnation, the logic of that relation mirrors the logic of his relation to creation. In the work of creation, the relation changes the creature in the relation changes, but the persons of the Godhead remain immutable in that relation, immutable and living. Likewise, in the event of incarnation, the relation changes, the human nature of Christ changes, but the divine person remains living and immutable in that relation. This insight provides the theological rails that keep the communicatio idiomatum from being misapplied to teach the mutability of the person of the Son in the hypostatic union. Voss explicitly applies this new relation of creation to the logic of the hypostatic union. He says this, and this is what Van Til was echoing earlier. He says, the deity 
has not ceased to be deity and is not in the least altered or changed by the incarnation, except insofar as through the person, through it, as it, through the person, has entered into a new relationship. Nor is the true humanity elevated on the supposition of the eternity of the person, except so far as it has entered into a new and entirely unique relationship. Now, please hear this because this is extremely useful. The eternal person of the Son remained immutable and is not in the least altered or changed by the Incarnation. Yet, insofar as in the hypostatic union, the person has entered into a new relationship to what is assumed. In that relation, the eternal person is not changed, nor is the humanity elevated above its nature. The humanity is not deified or elevated in the hypostatic union, except insofar as it enters into a new relationship. Thus, the analogy of the new relation to creation is what Voss means when he speaks of an entirely unique relation in the hypostatic union. Voss avoids both what we've termed elsewhere as front-door mutualism, where the divine person changes, as well as backdoor mutualism, where the humanity changes and is elevated or deified above its nature. So the analogy between the terminal work of creation and the terminal event of incarnation lies close at hand. In neither instance does the person of the mediator change And in neither instance is what he relates to elevated above its essence. So to bring this theology of the hypostatic union to bear on the doctrine of God and the creator-creature relation, let me put it this way, combining the insights of both Voss and Van Til here. The mystery of the incarnation does not violate the new relation of creation, but illustrates it in a climactic form. The mystery of the incarnation expresses the already existing mystery of the new relation where God as living and immutable relates to the creature without undergoing change modification, or transformation. Van Til says it this way, Christ was and remained even when he was in the manger in Bethlehem a divine person. But this divine person took to itself in close union with its divine nature, a human nature. The Creed of Chalcedon has expressed all this by saying that in Christ the divine and human natures are so related as to be two natures without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. The former two safeguard against the idea the divine and human are in any sense intermingled. The latter two assert the full reality of the union. And then he immediately adds, It will be noted at this point that this view of the incarnation, listen, is in full accord with the doctrine of God set forth above. Even in the Incarnation, Christ could not commingle the eternal 
and the temporal. The eternal must always remain independent of and prior to the temp- temporal. This is where Van Til, following Voss, locates the mystery. The eternal Son of God, without change, assumes a changing human nature into union with his immutable divine person. Van Til, therefore, affirms an unqualified personal immutability of the Son of God in the work of creation and in the event of the Incarnation. Now, I want you to think with me about the interrelations here. The doctrine of God in the creator-creature relation, the doctrine of man as the image of God and in covenant with God, that supplies the classical Reformed Trinitarianism and Federalism that lies at the heart of a Reformed theology and a Reformed apologetics. Van Til adds to that doctrine, that classical Reformed Trinitarianism and Federalism, he adds its redemptive expression in the doctrine of the person of Christ. And he makes two fundamental points. Number one, the incarnation is by no means necessary to enable or even perfect the original relation of creation. Yes, it's ordained from before the foundation of the world. But that doesn't mean that the creator-creature relation is somehow defective and in need of supplementation, in need of the incarnation from its outset. That's Bardian. That's a fundamental Bardian construction. Secondly, Van Til says that what we say about the person of the Son in the act of the hypostatic union mirrors exactly what we say about the persons of the Godhead in the work of creation. Living, immutable, self-contained, simple Trinitarian persons relate to creation without change. In a manner parallel to that, the living, immutable, simple, self-contained person of the Trinity, the second person of the Trinity, takes to himself a true body and a reasonable soul into a hypostatic union, and the nature of that union expresses rather than undermines the logic of the creator-creature relation. Van Til says, this view of the incarnation is in full accord with the doctrine of the immutable triune creator. The immutable triune creator entails an immutable person who is the mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ. Now, once we understand this, we start to recognize this central premise, that the doctrine of Christ expresses rather than competes with the classical Reformed Trinitarianism and Federalism entailed in the creator-creature relation. That deserves all the emphasis that we know how to give it. And it helps us understand that from this point forward, when we're talking about the doctrine of Christ, especially here when we're talking about the emphasis on his person, and now we're going to talk about his work, the person work of Christ does not add some new mutualistic, pantheistic, or correlativist theme that was missing earlier on. It rather continues to teach 
and affirm and express redemptively the classical Reformed Trinitarianism and Federalism in place before the fall. Now, let's talk about the work of Christ. We've already hinted a little bit about the work of the Christ, that the Incarnation is a redemptive necessity, not a creational necessity. It's not necessary in order for the Creator to relate to the creature. It's necessary for the Savior to relate to the saved. But Van Til sets the work of Christ in language and categories that stand directly over against traditional Roman Catholic and modern Bardian alternatives. He says this, If we recall that man set for himself a false idea of knowledge when he became a sinner, that is, he lost true wisdom, we may say that in Christ man was reinstated to true knowledge. In Christ, man realizes that he is a creature of God and that he cannot seek for comprehensive knowledge. Christ is our wisdom. He is our wisdom not only in the sense that he tells us how to get to heaven, he is our wisdom too in teaching us true knowledge about everything concerning which we should have knowledge. As we developed in Van Til's Doctrine of Revelation, module and, uh, and book, true knowledge is concreated. True knowledge was given to Adam in the creational act of image endowment and operated from the outset under the specially revealed terms of the covenant of works. Adam was not defective and in need of deifying grace to enable participation in the essence of God, deeper Catholic conception. He was not created as a sinner and in need of the so-called Christ event in the primordial realm of Geshikta. Rather, God created Adam in natural religious fellowship that could advance to consummation through covenantal obedience without the need of the donum and without the need of the Christ event. So when Van Til speaks about Adam and the grace that is in Jesus Christ, it is not the elevating grace of Rome. It is not the geschichte grace of Bart. It is instead... The coming of Jesus Christ in calendar time to restore and to bring to consummation what Adam lost as the federal head of the race under covenant. Van Til invokes the threefold office of Jesus Christ as second and last to Adam, speaking of him as a prophet, priest, and a king. And he says in summary terms that Jesus Christ came as a prophet to reveal to us the will of God for our salvation, to purchase salvation and ascend to heaven, and to rule over his and our enemies in his two estates, first humiliation and then exaltation. It's not the incarnation deifying our humanity that Van Til talks about. That's Thomas. It's not the Christ event reconciling God to man in a distinct time dimension. For Van Til, Jesus Christ redeems his people in his two successive historical estates of humiliation and exaltation. He sets that over against the incarnational emphasis in Thomas and Bart. So he presents the work of Christ in terms of classical Reformed Federalism. The work of Christ 
saves according to one person with two natures, a threefold office, in two estates, humiliation and exaltation. Now, once we understand that, we talk about the doctrine of Christ then. And we understand what Van Til's saying about it in relation to the doctrine of man on the one side and in relation to the doctrine of God on the other side. Van Til says that everything pertaining to a Reformed apologetic depends on maintaining the total depravity of the sinner and the divine grace sovereignly applied in Christ. And so, arising out of this, Van Til speaks of, uh, on the one side now, speaking to man, he talks about his doctrine of salvation. I'll highlight what he says in a kind of summary way here. Unlike Thomas, who says that man lost only supernatural gifts of grace in the fall, but the good nature was only diminished, Van Til insists, along with Augustine and Calvin, that the whole of fallen man is enslaved to to sin and dead in sin. Unlike traditional remonstrant Arminians who argue that sin weakens free agency but does not enslave it, Van Til insists that fallen man is utterly incapable to prepare himself to salvation or cooperate with the prevenient grace of God. Unlike the post-Reformation Lutherans who say that man can be saved if he does not resist the, the, the grace of God in the gospel, Van Til says that the one who has fallen in Adam will only resist the gospel. Given total depravity and death in sin, salvation comes by a sovereign application of redemption in union with Christ in effectual calling that elicits and sustains faith. The Spirit unilaterally calls believers otherwise dead in sin into fellowship with God in Christ and makes them alive together with Christ while dead in sin. Salvation in Christ is a sovereign work of grace comparable to creation ex nihilo. Paul says that God has called light out of darkness and has caused the light of Christ to shine upon us, Ephesians 5.8. The Spirit raises dry bones from the dust of of death, forms flesh upon them, and breathes into them the breath of life. This is an Augustinian and Calvinist view of total depravity and inability, and it is a doctrine of sovereign grace. Now, why is that so important, according to Van Til? How does this doctrine of salvation fit into this doctrine of the creator-creature relation, man as created in the image and likeness of God in covenant before the fall, and this doctrine of Christ that Van Til set forth? Well, Van Til insists that God remains self-contained and self-determined in the sovereign application of salvation to the church. Given God's sovereignty and total depravity, the Spirit of God, not man, Van Til says, had to affect the salvation of man, and this required that the Spirit himself is also a member of the ontological trinity. 
And so when he's speaking now of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit in his doctrine of salvation, he's saying that the Spirit sovereignly applies salvation. He remains self-contained and self-determined at every point, even in his redemptive relation to man in the application of salvation. Van Til says that if sinners could refuse salvation, quote, the eternal God would be set at naught by temporal man. In fact, he says, if we say that man can of himself accept or reject the gospel as he pleases, we've made the eternal God dependent on man. If God is independent in himself, independent in creation, independent in the hypostatic union, then he remains independent in the application of redemption. Do you see the point? Van Til is saying that the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, remain immutable and independent in the work of creation, immutable and independent in the work of incarnation, immutable and independent in the application of redemption. Van Til's system, please hear this, the Reformed system of doctrine resists correlativism in every theological locus. The doctrine of God, the doctrine of man, the doctrine of sin, the doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of salvation, and of course, in the doctrine of consummation, nothing changes. You see, the salvation sovereignly accomplished by Christ is sovereignly applied by the Spirit of Christ. Grace is irresistible. So to summarize this point, listen to what Van Til says. This, this unites all of these doctrinal concerns across the board, and it shows you that the Reformed system of doctrine is anti-correlativist at every point. Listen to what Van Til says. Quote, If we refuse to mix the eternal and the temporal at the point of creation, and... In the Incarnation, if we refuse to mix the eternal and the temporal at the point of creation and at the point of the Incarnation, we must also refuse to mix them at the point of salvation. The triune God remains immutable and absolute in the new relation of creation. The Son of God remains immutable and absolute in the accomplishment of salvation in his estates of humiliation and exaltation, in the event of the incarnation, and the Spirit of God remains immutable and absolute in the application of redemption in Christ. All forms of correlativism, Pelagian, Socinian, Arminian, Modernist, Bardian, Evangelical, Open Theism, Biblicist Reformed, that newer species of, of things, Process Theism, Dipolar Theism, all of them mix the eternal and the temporal in creation, incarnation, and salvation, so that God and man become mutually dependent and mutually determining as they, quote-unquote, interact with one another in a common, shared plane of time and space as both are conditioned by it. Any view that allows for correlativism in the God-man relation of creation must allow for synergism in the God-man relation of salvation. That's 
Van Til's point. Correlativism in creation leads inexorably to synergism in salvation. Now, why did I do this? Why did we begin with this? Van Til begins here. The Reformed system of doctrine is the foundation for his apologetical method. Classical Reformed Trinitarianism and Federalism. Comprehensively expressed in terms of the doctrines of God, man, Christ, salvation, and last things. Bears decisively on apologetical method. This is not a vacuous prolegomena. This is not simply rehearsing doctrine that's accidentally related to apologetical method. Van Til's whole point in the defense of the faith, in fact, the whole point of Van Til's published corpus, is that there is an organic relation, an organic integral relation between classical Reformed Trinitarianism and Federalism and apologetical method. It's an organic relation between these two things, not an accidental one. It's not that you can take his or leave his doctrine and accept his apologetical method. Van Til's point is that if and only if you affirm this classical Reformed Trinitarianism and Federalism, if and only if you accept that, then you will have a vantage point to see the importance of a reformed apologetical method. So let me make a, a bit of a summary statement and draw a couple of implications that are going to move us into a discussion of starting point and method, the substance of our course. Ventil's thoroughgoing application of classically reformed theology a theology of the creator-creature relation, to every doctrinal locus, which we've just seen, supplies the definite doctrinal conceptions that underlie his development of a Reformed apologetic. The Reformed doctrines of God, man, Christ, and salvation inform his apologetic in foundational ways that determine the proper starting point of the apologetical encounter, shape the method of defending the faith, and dictate the character of evidence, the function of reason, and the nature of proof in apologetical argumentation. The creator-creature relation of classical Reformed theology bears directly on these facets of an apologetical method. Now, Van Til's theology of the creator-creature relation carries two implications that will unfold at various points throughout this course, one theological and the other apologetical. The first implication concerns the theological observations surveyed in previous modules, so I will be brief. Van Til's advocacy of Voss's deeper Protestant conception entails that the classically reformed system of theology stands antithetically over against the deeper Catholic conception of Thomas's nature-grace model and the deeper modernist conception of Barth's historiegeschichte model. Van Til's classical reformed Trinitarianism and federalism 
cannot be theologically reconciled to the deeper Catholic or the deeper modernist theological systems. Or, I know Bart denies system, but the comprehensive view of the creator-creature relation for Thomas and Bart stands over against Van Til's deeper Protestant conception. The second implication concerns the organic relation between the system of theology and the method of defending the faith. I'll try to illustrate this throughout the rest of these lectures at various points. But let me say this. Thomas Aquinas's nature-grace model leads to arguments for theism in light of truths that can be known and proved by natural reason unaided by revelation. You could call that natural theology that are then supplemented by additional arguments for Christianity in light of supernatural revelation. You can call that sacred theology. And his method is therefore a movement from natural reason unaided by revelation to supernatural revelation that perfects what is imperfect in the natural. The theological system determines the nature of the apologetical argument. Related to that, Barth's Historie-Geschichte model leads to the abandonment of natural knowledge of God in history. Barth denies that in history there is any natural knowledge of God to be found. He instead locates the natural knowledge of God in the revelation of Christ in a supratemporal event above and beyond history, forever inaccessible in history. But Van Til sets forth one grand scheme of covenantal revelation and argues for a method that at every point integrates that one grand scheme in the presentation of a reformed system of doctrine. He calls it Christian theism. I call it Reformed Trinitarianism and Federalism. Voss called it the deeper Protestant conception. The organic relation between theological system and apologetical method helps us grasp that the deeper Protestant conception entails a distinctive apologetical method, as does the deeper Catholic and deeper modernist conceptions. They determine what you're going to say about the practice of or rejection of apologetics. Stating the matter this way, then, is going to help us understand the indispensable importance of of remembering the organic connection between the doctrinal system we confess and the apologetical method that grows organically out of it. We'll turn in our next lecture to the way that this system of doctrine bears on what Van Til called the starting point in presenting the gospel to unbelievers.